0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, where birders talk birding. This has been a terrific week. You have to love it when daylight savings times comes, and you don't have to get up so early to go birding, and you get to stay out birding later in the evening. That's always good. Plus, new birds are showing up. The weather's turned out well the last couple of days, and yesterday I got, got out to Joint Base Lewis-McChord, saw my first violet-green swallows of the season, then Western bluebirds, uh, even got a picture of the violet green swallow showing the violet tail and the green back, which is just really fun. Uh, but you know, the best thing of the week is that I've got Ben Lizdas on as my guest today on the Bird Banter podcast. Ben is a world-renowned expert in birding optics. Worked at Eagle, Eagle Optics for quite a while, but now has a startup business uh, with Birdwatchers Digest called Red Start Birding, where they have a curated selection of optics so you can find only stuff that's good, you don't have to sift through all of the garbage, and should be really a nice resource for birders. So I'm excited today for the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number seven. So welcome, Ben, to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Oh, that was my pleasure, Ed. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, good. Uh, anyway, Ben, I got a chance to look at your bio and you, uh, the, at the Red Star Birding page, and boy, you've got quite a... Quite a history quite a story as an optics guy the the, the LeBron James of uh, optics that's a well you got some gotta have some game to live up to that
1: <laughs> I guess so
0: yeah, yeah I
1: kind of I kind of came into birding the the long way around I you know I've, I went to college studying landscape architecture with a emphasis on restoration ecology oh okay. and I've always had an interest in you know ecology natural history the outdoors it's always been something i've been keen on and plants seem like a really easy avenue to get there uh they stay in one place they don't
0: move around that's nice they
1: they don't move around when you want to study and research them there aren't any ethical issues about taking living creatures like animal type living creatures out of their habitat or it just seemed like a cleaner type of a um Family of, <laughs> of yeah. organisms to work with. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I really got into that and doing research one summer, um, collecting plant samples of prairies here in Wisconsin. I, I would often go out with a bird surveyor to these grassland uh, and prairie parcels here in Wisconsin. And early in the morning, I would help her on her bird surveys, just sort of, you know, a person to help identify birds with my basic birding knowledge, which is very rudimentary early on. Sure. And, this, uh, is now, about, this, this is in college now,
0: Ben? We're talking... This is in college, yes. Yeah, so okay. This was way
1: back. This was you know, pre-2000. Got it. Okay. So
0: that's, that's kind of
1: initially how I got, how I became susceptible to getting into bird watching. Uh-huh. But really, uh, I ended up getting a job at Eagle Optics right around 2000, just as a seasonal job. I was working as a um, with a landscape architecture, doing design, build stuff, restoration, ecology. It was seasonal work though. So come winter, I need to get a winter job. I knew some friends who were working at Eagle Optics, got a job there, and then when I had access to not just really good optics, but when I had access to a community of bird watchers and really high-level birders, sure. it seemed to open up a lot of doors to me in terms of, uh, you know, developing an interest in bird watching. So, and then it just was like wildfire after that. I was I was all about birds, and it certainly helped me evolve as a Optics salesperson, you know. I mean, if I'm going to have a job selling optics to birdwatchers,
0: against health to talk the game, yeah,
1: exactly. And you might as well go all in and kind of be able to put yourself in their shoes, be able to have empathy for the problems they're trying to solve, and also share a common passion and. Really glad it was birds as opposed to, say, you know, selling someone tires for their automobile or insurance policies. I for sure. Don't know. I don't know if I get as passionate about that, but it seemed pretty, pretty easy to to get passionate about birds.
0: Yeah, it it is. I uh, I fell into it uh, later in my life, around thirty or so, and boy, I've been pretty enamored ever since. So yeah. But I, and and I uh, story I don't know. Maybe maybe. Fifteen years ago or something, I I'd been battling you know crappy optics my whole birding life you know mm. and uh, mm. and and some some guy says well, what are you doing with those binos I says what do you mean he says you know you just need to buy the best binos you can afford and I said like duh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, uh, went out and bought some Swarovskis and have been in love ever since that's great yeah
1: it's it's amazing as someone who uh, I can remember when I was just starting to get into optics and. The reality of what good, how much, how expensive good binoculars are, and this was, you know, right around uh, two thousand. So sure. the real high end binoculars then, still the same brands that we're familiar with today, Leica, like, uh, Zeiss, and Swarovski. They were, you know, uh, Bausch and Lohm actually had a nice high end pair of binoculars then, but they were coming in around eight, nine hundred dollars. Yeah. But you know, coming into that space from someone who didn't have a birding background and certainly not an optics background, I was thinking to myself, good binoculars might cost one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars, maybe. Yeah. But uh, everything yeah. kind of shifts nah. once you kind of realize yeah. the scope of the marketplace, and obviously once you realize how good binoculars you can, can be. And the downside of jumping into that space, though, of course, is that all the optics that I had been used to using no longer really...
0: You you, just, you couldn't you couldn't look through them anymore. It just hurt your exactly. eyes. Exactly, it hurt your exactly. eyes. Exactly, it'd be
1: yeah. like going back to watching black and white television. You know, or or yeah, yeah, fuzzy black and white television. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so so you got the job with the Eagle Optics, and uh, and your your career has been uh, you know legendary almost ever since. You're, you're the <laughs> you're the optics guy. Uh, so well,
1: it it seemed to stick with me. I'm I'm, I'm I guess I I. I'm, I'm, naturally relate to people pretty well, which makes me a good salesperson. And, uh, therefore I also found myself in a position of kind of managing the sales staff at Eagle optics too. So I was a sales and market manager for a long time. So, uh, as a result, one of the things that I love so much about my job is I get to go out to birdwatching festivals and events around the country. I've been doing that for, I guess, going on 16 years now. And, it's a great way of not only seeing the birds all around North America, but of meeting and interacting with bird watchers and appreciating kind of w- what that demographic looks like, the different people, the the different places. And, you know, developing those relationships is all something that I, I absolutely love. Uh, it, it really makes me feel good about the work that I do at being able to see firsthand how selling someone something can really help them and bring them joy. So, you know, b- being in the position that I had, being able to interact with all these birders for all uh, throughout all those years, um, it was it was just it was really easy to become an expert on optics because I was just incentivized by helping people. Essentially, yeah.
0: well, you're certainly easy to talk to. I met you at the at the San Diego uh, festival just a week or two ago, and yep. yeah, you seemed like a normal guy. I was impressed. That's cool. Uh, and I uh, I listened rod. I listened in preparation for this. I listened to a few of your recent podcasts. Uh, you okay. did one on backyard birding, I think. And uh, I've, I've got a friend uh, who you know, has a couple of grandkids, and she wanted me to take them birding. And I said, oh, God, I don't have any binos they can use. And he mentioned those, uh, I think, Kawa 630 uh Binos, and I thought those sound perfect. So I just ordered a bear and I'm going to get them next Fantastic. week. So All I'm right. excited. You, you've got a you've got a Red Wing uh, Red Wing Red Star birding uh, uh, customer. I just signed up.
1: Awesome, thanks. I'd appreciate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I can't wait. It's going to be fun. I remember I I taught you know tried to get my kids into birding with a the same binos I started with Bushnell 735. And God, they work. Oh, I I got those out the other day, and I said, no wonder my kids didn't like to go birding.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, people often will uh, show me their ancient binoculars and and saying, "What, what, what can I do with these?" And antique binoculars are kind of like antique computers. It's like they're it's a it's an instrument that you get for its functionality, and unless it's got sentimental value, you look at those old binoculars and you say, "I just don't know what you would you do with can, you these." You can't even can't,
0: recycle them.
1: You Can't really recycle <laughs> them, and it's hard to say pass them on to someone else to show someone the joy of birding because torture it's them. Yeah, exactly them. exactly. <laughs>
0: Cool. Uh, anyway, so uh, you're you're now with uh, Birdwatchers Digest and Red Star mm-hmm. Birding. Uh, yep. Tell us about that company and how 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 are you going to compete with the the Amazons of the world and and uh, what's sure. your strategy?
1: So um, you know, I've been working with Birdwatchers Digest for you know 14 years or so when I was at Eagle Optics, oh, okay. just as a advertising partners of ours.
0: I didn't know that. And, okay.
1: I, and I would run into Bill Thompson, the um, editor and publisher on a regular basis at birding events as he would be doing keynotes and promoting some of the books he'd written. So I had a, a long standing friendship with Bill. He and I just peas in a pod. We got on great from the moment we met. And so. Sounds uh, like everybody
0: well, gets along with Bill Thompson. Pretty yeah. Well. He yeah for, just the, for the like, most part. He's, seems like, he's like a super a, nice guy,
1: super gregarious person. Um, really funny. And, and I'll always, you know putting other people before him he's always taking care of people so it's really difficult to not like bill instantly upon meeting him so he and i um just always had a great friendship and got on great and so when it came time for me to move on from eagle optics bill said well why don't you come work for me at bird watchers digest we need someone to do our ad sales for us so um you know it was a sales job it wasn't what i was used to necessarily but you know, I had a chance to um, go on a number of birding trips with Bill th- throughout this job opportunity and whatnot. So essentially, I jumped on board there, and then one of the projects I initiated was developing Red Start Birding. I told Bill, you know, we should diversify the business here and really um, continue making this pivot from a magazine who that now does some events and has some tours and whatnot to uh, offering a stronger retail component that we can help serve birders, and I've got... Connections and optics. I've got uh, history here. I, I know how to take care of this. I've been so. Then we developed Red Star Birding, and it really cut in the same mold that um, Eagle Optics was, yes. and that is just a really high level of customer service, uh, curated selection of optics. You know, we, we really only stock things that I could look someone in the face and say, "I think you'd be happy at th- with this for the money." Yeah, um, and we I, carry think, I think what also- you can
0: emphasize that. Say it again. I mean, that's you know, for yeah. a beginner. I mean, you go on Amazon or something. It's like, my God, what, 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 where, where do we even start? It,
1: exactly, exactly. So that's one of the you know the the high level of customer service and expertise is something that you know I count on separating us from Amazon. Certainly, Amazon is great for buying stuff, but for learning about things or for making a selection, for paring down. You know, choices for understanding what you get for at certain price points in optics. You're not going to go to Amazon to get a birder's perspective on why A, B, or C works well for birding, or why you might want to consider D, E, or F instead of that. Sure. So, so you know, with with my 18 years of history um, in birding optics, and then you look at Birdwatcher's Digest, which has been around for 40 years. I think what we offer is, is just a degree of experience and expertise that's hard to find in birding, particularly something that might be so finely tuned and specialized on just the optics end of things sure. for, for bird watching. So that's what I like to think of as being the value that we bring to it. And in this day and age with a lot of these optics manufacturers and the pricing structures they have in place, you, a lot of, I'd say 95% of everything we stock at Red Start Birding, you cannot get
0: cheaper Every, Everything costs Amazon. the same everywhere. Everything I mean, costs the same penny difference, maybe, but uh, yeah, not even so, that usually.
1: Yeah, so you know, I would say that um, I, I think we we do well. Like I said, coming to this from a point of view of, of experts, and one of the nice things about Birdwatchers Digest, in terms of being able to have a business like Red Start and get it off the ground in this day and age when you know, e-commerce competition is still pretty fierce, uh, we have some podcasts that we produce out there with the birds and this birding life. We've got birdwatchers digest the magazine we've got a digital newsletter Wires. So we have lots of um content that we can use to you know kind of reach make out. our presence sure. known in, yeah. in in the market for birders granted it's still been a slow start you know coming from eagle optics would as big and well established of a company that that was being in year two of red start birding it's i'm constantly reminded like things take time <laughs> you know i, I kind of wanted to go out of the gates and be half the size of eagle optics sure right, right, out of the, right out of the gates and you know business doesn't work that way and um learning that but still really pleased with what we've been able to get done with red start thus far
0: well good for you good for you uh so you have i think red start has a uh uh or maybe bird Digest digested before i'm not sure have some tours and that sort of thing too don't you
1: yeah, Birdwatcher's Digest, we we run a series of tours called Reader Rendezvous. And, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying we're not a tour company. And to our advantage, to some extent, you know, we pick about seven tours a year that we do, period. Not like seven trips to one destination or seven destinations that we go to multiply. We do seven right. completely different tours a year. And each year they're different. We handpick them. We have meetings. We talk about places that, you know, are maybe a little bit off the beaten path but have great birding. Uh, we talk about places that have, like, logistically work out well that can accommodate birders. And and these tours will be a combination of international destinations and domestic trips. So, for instance, this year in, in 2019, I'm about to head to Spain for a reader rendezvous that we're doing there. That's going to be next week I'm heading there. Very nice. I'm sorry, it's the end of this week.
0: Ooh, um, a, little war- a little warmer than uh, Mount
1: Horeb. A little, a little warmer than Mount horror Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's going to be um, one of our international ones. We've got a tour coming up to Panama this year. It's going to be another one of our international tours. It's going to be in the fall. And in the fall, we have a South African tour. So we've got three international tours this year. The Pan- Panama one will be at the Canopy Tower for a little bit. And then at a lodge called Tranquilo Bay run by James and Renee Kimball. I've never been to Tranquilo Bay before, but I've just heard wonderful things about it. And, of course, Canopy Tower. If any of your listeners have not been to the Canopy Tower yet and they ever get a chance or desire to go birding in Panama, definitely put that on your list. I think everyone's heard of that.
0: I certainly haven't been there. It's a phenomenal
1: place. And then um, other tours this year is going to be uh, the Prairies and Potholes area of North Dakota and the Texas Hill Country um you know the where we're going to go see the Mexican free-tailed bats the golden-cheek warbler and the black-capped vireo sure. some of our target yeah, birds there nice birds. and then another one this fall for, that we're doing with Maine Audubon um going out to um Monhegan Island so a pretty good lineup and and yeah. like I said all kind of you know do you get to go birdies? on all of these I get to go on most of them almost all of them occasionally we had one to ecuador that we did earlier this year we only sent one representative from the magazine and that was our um managing editor dawn so you know it's it's a lot to put on one person's plate to run the retail thing to do the ad sales to i write some copy for the magazine do the podcasts and then uh go on a handful of trips each year but it really is a fantastic way of um Making a living, too.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like a dream job. So, sounds like a dream job. I, I, uh, I wish I could do my career over. <laughs> anyway, uh, Family Doctor wasn't such a bad gig, though. I like that. I like that. Anyway. Very important. So, so, Bird Watcher's Digest has kind of a cool story. Can, I, I looked at this. sounds like a real family business. Can you give me a Cliff Notes version of that? Yeah, I think so- people like to hear that.
1: Yeah, so you know, Bill. So the current editor of Birdwatcher's Digest is Bill Thompson III. His father, Bill Thompson II, and uh, his wife Elsa are the ones who developed Birdwatcher's Digest. And essentially, I think it was, as I understand, it was just it was an idea. Uh, I think Bill's father had a, a background in journalism, I, I believe, and uh, it was just kind of a you know coming together of the family where they all decided let's just launch this birding magazine and and you know see where it takes us and you know th- this was back in the day i mean 40 years ago so yeah. th- there wasn't a lot of it wasn't like they just uh, put it up there. on a
0: put it out self published you know digital thing exactly it's yeah.
1: it, it, it just a different day and age and there wasn't a lot of bird watching content out there bird watching was you know way more small of a market than it is now and yeah you didn't have all these digital assets so it was a very different time and and they just you know had the right idea at the right time yeah and they, they really filled a spot they rode
0: the wave yeah
1: they, they they rode the wave and they they differentiated themselves from other birding publications in that it was they they built themselves as a um a magazine for birders that love to read and for readers that love to bird
0: that's a good. And that's a good tagline. It it really is, and
1: you know the, the content is not all higher level bird identification or taxonomy. Or it's a different even, niche
0: for sure. It, it's Everything it's from the niche. backyard birder to the avid birder.
1: A lot of it is storytelling. Even the columns that we do have that are more technical, whether it's some uh, Jim McCormick's photography column or some of the identification columns that we do that, like Alvaro Jaramillo does, it's It's written in a way that is, no pun intended, very digestible. So we we try to think of it as a magazine that is accessible to all levels of birders, yet engaging even for long, you know, experienced birders who've you know got life lists in the seven hundreds.
0: Sure. So. Sure. So you've gotten to go some pretty cool places uh, in. Uh, at, I mean, just going to all these bird festivals hits the ABA year pretty well. Do you have any favorite spots, places you really, really like to go, or just enjoy, right. look forward to every year?
1: Yeah, I mean the. So you and I just met not too San long Diego ago at the San not, Diego Birding bad, Festival. Yeah. And as someone who lives in Wisconsin, you know, by the time the end of February, beginning of March comes rolling around, it's nice to just escape kind of the, the winter a little bit at that point and, and granted i love winter a big winter sports fan but uh the san diego birding festival comes at the right time of year it's just beautiful there the bird diversity is fantastic it is um they, and you know the the place itself is just is great to visit the great infrastructure the restaurants the food culture there so all those things i mean when when i look at what makes a great birding destination for me i tend to look at it maybe more holistically than your average bird watcher. It's not just about the birding list, but that's important. But I do think about, you know, the the food, the the, the lodging, the scenery, the, the whole part of the experience to me matters. So San Diego is a great spot. I also really like Southeast Arizona. Once again, another one of those border yeah. regions where you get, you know, uh, Southern specialties. You know, not, not quite as nice periods. in
0: August as San Diego in March, but yes, good.
1: Yeah, but but still, I mean, you <laughs> pretty know, nice. don't, don't, yeah, pretty Southeast nice. Arizona in August is still pretty pleasant. You know, the monsoons are coming in, and in those mountainous areas, you the, yeah. the temperatures are actually quite yeah, I, nice. I, I've
0: done it. It's wonderful, yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it's great, and uh, it's just, it's beautiful. You know, the, the, the it's remote, but it's, it's gorgeous, so that's another one of those spots, and of course, you've got places like Cape May, New Jersey, where the birding is just always consistently good and the birding culture there is uh-huh. so evolved there's it's so like, many great birders every time you live.
0: turn around you see a legend it seems like
1: exactly exactly we we did a reader rendezvous there that last fall and uh it was outstanding we we, we all the at any given day all the well-known birders you would run into and just have had these anecdotal conversations that would lead to these great birding insights and then the spectacle of fall migration in cape may it was yeah. it was outstanding whether we were we were at the raptor watch or one morning we we're out birding at uh higby and the number of flickers northern flickers that were flying overhead streams and streams it, it of them it can
0: be shocking it it, it,
1: it, it was you just stopped looking at them for a little while because you just figured, well, they're going to wear out and you know, there's, there's not going to be any more. You'd bird for like half an hour. You'd look up in the sky and they'd be like, there's that stream of flickers still going. Yeah, Just phenomenal. So it is um, those are a couple of places. I had a chance to bird in Israel for the Champions of the Flyway. Uh, kind of a, you know, it's a, right. it's a bird. I've heard sense. of it. And that was another place where being able to experience migration over on that side of the planet, all the birds migrating north from Africa into continental Europe. That was another fantastic experience. And, uh, you know, Israel is kind of like a, a bit of a bottleneck as, a, as, as the birds kind of yeah. funnel up into Europe. They They congregate right there in the southern tip of Israel. So it's a great place to be able to witness and appreciate the same phenomena of migration that we have here. But the, you know, the, the pieces of the puzzle. All the players are totally different, of course, with the, yeah. with the bird species. So, so it's, it's a it's a really fast was a fascinating experience doing that. Yeah, so I'm going to... I'm
0: going to Morocco in April uh, with, okay. the, with the group, and I'll kind oh, of get awesome. the, the other other end of that funnel. It should be pretty spectacular. I'm really yeah, excited. Yeah, definitely. Really excited. So, those are some of your favorite spots. Uh, get, do you have any particular experiences or people you've met that you thought are just uh, worth talking about?
1: Hmm. Boy, you know it's really hard to to single one out. single some some of those those places out. I mean, I, I think of like for instance, when I think of champions of the Flyway, I think of you know time I've spent there with with friends like Bill or Alvaro. Uh, yeah. Alvaro seems where, like
0: a really cool guy. I've heard him a couple he, of times in your podcasts, and he seems he's fascinating, in, in
1: incredibly smart. He's a genius, but he's so approachable and likable. Um, and you being able to spend time with him, it's just—it's always laughs and insight. You know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's like we're either having a deep conversation or we are on the ground laughing. Yeah. Um, Fun. You know, so so it, my experiences traveling abroad birding—it's it, almost who I'm with. I, you know, there's spending time in um, at a different Champions of the Flyway event where I, not with when Alvaro was on our team, but with Michael O'Brien whenever mm-hmm. the Kate May birders and and george uh,
0: said and so i guess he of the when fabulous think, ears <laughs>
1: yeah when, when when i think of um you know i when i think of the experiences i have birding and the people i get to meet it isn't so much the people at those destinations it's almost who i'm going there with and it's really been one of the gifts of working in this industry at, at a level where i get around like this where i get to meet people like you know george like michael o'brien louise zemitis um you know, fantastic Scott Widensall. you know, the list goes on and on of these really top level birders that I get to casually hang out and go birdwatching with. And it's inspiring and a little intimidating. The other day I was telling someone that I'm not an avid birder. And, I was, and, they, and they looked at me and said, what, you're not an avid birder? And I just had to recalibrate my thoughts yeah. and I think, well, it's all within What's context. The scale? It depends who yeah. you know. You know <laughs> if, if you compare yourself to someone like a Kevin Carlson or a Michael O'Brien, you say, yeah, I'm not an avid birder. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, but, but I just bird every single day of my life, but other yeah. than that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> you know, what, what you think of as an avid birder, just uh, when you get to hang out with all these amazing um, and talented people, it, it just it skews everything, of course.
0: Yeah, I, it's the same with me. I mean, I'm, I'm locally, I'm I'm okay you know I get around mm-hmm. and I can tell most of the birds but I go out with some of my buddies and they are just really good you know, and, uh, we're, yeah. ta- you know we're talking on a Pierce County Washington scale not a worldwide scale but it's the same idea same idea mm-hmm. you know it, your friends think oh you're really good and I said you don't know what really good is you know
1: yeah it's all it's all relative right <laughs>
0: for sure for sure. Well, that is so cool that you get to get to kind of be buddies with the the superstars. That's awesome. yeah. <laughs> they, uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, have, I look, my
1: little ditch. I, I I can help out when they have optics questions. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: exactly. Do you buy those? Are they out of adjustment? Maybe I can help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But what is that bird, by the way? Yeah. 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 I I uh, I was at. Uh, at the uh, Rio Grande Bird Fest, the Lower Rio Grande Bird Festival, oh, maybe two or three years ago, and oh. went on the birding by ear uh, trip to uh, where was it? One, one of the wildlife refugees down there with uh, Michael O'Brien and mm-hmm. his wife, and it's like, oh my goodness, it's just, it's, it's insane. I mean, he might be, he might be one chip note.
1: And, yeah, he and, might, he might be the most talented uh, birding by ear specialist that I certainly that i know i mean maybe I see, he has like, to be yeah. um it's it's astounding and uh it you know it's knowing people like like michael and that skills just always keeps me humble
0: oh for <laughs> sure for sure i mean i was just it was just shocking i mean you'd hear one chip note and he'd say oh blue Girl speaks i'm like wow <laughs> where'd, yeah. where'd you see that oh i didn't see that they just flew overhead
1: <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. But, but you know he's right. He's always right. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's yeah. He's 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 pretty accurate at all that. Yeah. So. I know.
0: I went to Kenya with a with a fellow uh, James Bradley who grew up in Kenya and has kind of a cool story. But uh, he was like that there. I mean, we we and he lives in British Columbia. He hasn't been lived in Kenya in twenty years, and he still knows every single sound. It's just <laughs> insane. Yeah, mm-hmm. people, people. Some people have that uh, incredible audio talent. It's uh, yeah. I,
1: I I think there's hours of dedication. It doesn't just happen. Learning exactly. So it's a it's a it's that mix of um, it comes easy to them. But even for the folks that might come easy to you're still talking about some pretty serious time in the field
0: for sure. For sure. Uh, so what do you have coming up? Uh, you're going to Spain.
1: Uh, yeah, I, got, I have, a, have a tour to Spain coming up. And then, uh, you know, after that, I think is when we, we get down to the um, Texas Hill Country, we're doing that tour. With our reader rendezvous, we will sometimes partner with our tour companies. So th- for the, the one in um, Texas Hill Country, we're going to be working with field guides. They're actually headquartered right, out of Austin. Right, And, you know, th- this will be a tour that has components of birding. That we will go to a distillery and sample some of the, you know, local craft whiskeys that they're doing. Some Ooh. of the food. Of course, Austin's just huge culturally as well. It is. We're even going to go to a music studio and see a little bit of a kind of music recording in progress. So we're going to get just a whole flavor Very of the cool. area. Very cool. Um, and the folks at field guides have been so great in understanding the value of that those cultural components as well as the you know obviously the target birds that we have and and seeing the bats too. So we have that going on the New River Birding and Nature Festival a perennial favorite of mine in uh, West Virginia near West the New Virginia. River Gorge. Okay.
0: I've never, uh, I've never been by, to West Virginia.
1: Cool. Yeah, run by Jeff Heater uh, It's at a place called Possum Creek. Probably the best place in the entire North America to be able to consistently see Swainson's Warbler. Yeah,
0: and yeah. I'll, and,
1: and just that's a good
0: one. That's not warbler. an easy one. Yeah,
1: not an easy one. Exactly. I've seen uh, one.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: one. <laughs> so, so that that one I look I look forward to going each and every year. The New River Burning Festival. Bill Thompson got me really turned on to that festival. He was the he was kind of in on that event uh, early on, and. uh He's when I was at Eagle Optics said, You gotta come to this birding festival and sell optics here. But it's just such a, a great event. The attendees are fantastic. The people who run it are great. It's just like a family reunion every year. So I've got that to look forward to. Then the Kachemak Bay Shorebird Festival in Homer, Alaska, oh, which wow. happens Mother's Day weekend every year. Uh that's another great event. Uh once again, you know, Homer Alaska's just a great town to visit it's you know all the shorebirds are coming through it's just kind of spring is breaking the whole town supports this festival it's really heavily locally attended but unlike some places where you can go there's a lot of locals everyone in alaska pretty much loves the outdoors whether they're for sure hunting or birding or do it
0: on a snowmobile or or, or bird watch or somehow or other
1: but but if you live up there, odds are you appreciate the outdoors. It's a yeah. great market from a sales perspective, um, going up there and selling optics and, you know, all, but the engagement that everyone has with this, it's kind of like the beginning of their tourist season is the shorebird festival and the level of engagement that the town has, and they embrace it with the uh, local wildlife refuge there. Um, it's a really fun event. I've been doing that one for maybe going on ten years now, and nice. it's always a one of my great spring traditional um, events that I go to. So that's gonna, you know, essentially round up my spring. Then, you know, what's going on in June? Well, we'll have to see. Right now, it's a little bit early. The Acadia Birding Festival is a possibility. There's some other events that might be happening. I've got a Eighteen-year-old daughter graduating from high school this year as well, so you might want to be uh, around
0: in June. Yeah. I I,
1: I got to be sure I'm around for her high school graduation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be nice. She'd appreciate that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, good. So I uh, I have to say I I think I might do some more bird festivals. I've always sort of been, you know, I've I've kind of been a person who just wanted to find my own birds. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, mm-hmm. the idea of going and, and having somebody show me birds was just I don't seem like cheating almost a
1: little bit. There's something to be said, though, about being around your people, right? You know yeah. It's not too often that you can get together with uh, dozens or even hundreds of of birders. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's – I value being able to go out birding on my own, but certainly – having experiences shared experiences with other bird watchers is something yeah. that i enjoy thoroughly
0: for sure so. i mean i do that on a local basis we have a birding mm-hmm. club and and uh, you know ken browns my kind of mentor and uh, uh, best birding buddy and we 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 lead trips all over the place locally and and so we have our own little group of people but that well that seems a little different <laughs> going out with people you don't know but anyway mm-hmm. i i have the little bit of festival experience i've done i've it's been great so i think i might have to take that up my wife died a year ago so i'm a little more footloose now and uh and uh yeah it might be might be a a strategy for me. <laughs> we'll yeah, see.
1: well, I mean you know, uh I'd be happy to recommend a couple. I mean, if you're looking for, you know, smaller ones, the uh, the Kadia Birding Festival that I mentioned earlier is is great. If you don't mind being gone from the northern or from the um you know, the the, the main 48 states during spring migration for a little bit, the Shorebird Festival up in Homer, Alaska is another one that's really oh, worth that going sounds to. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you've got larger events like the Space Coast Birding Festival in uh, Titusville, Florida. That happens in late January. And, you know, it, it, it's certainly one of the bigger birding festivals around. Right. But a great place to meet all sorts of people from across the birdwatching industry, whether it's authors, uh, speakers, uh, you know, professional tour leaders. And, and the, you're you have... A lot of great opportunities to go birding with people like a Michael O'Brien or Richard Crossley, For sure. or you know something like that at, at some yeah. of these major birding events. It, that it can, can be, be cool. A, a fun I, draw. Can I,
0: Kay and I spent a, a weekend with Pete Dunn at the at the Hawk Watch in October a few years oh, ago, and uh, fantastic. Oh my goodness, uh, yeah, we, we, we were uh, we're at the Hawk Watch, and and Pete says you got to go to the Butterfly Triangle right now, and he said why? He says uh, Crossley has a a a, a, a uh Bicknell thrush and a uh, and a Swainson thrush uh, in wow. hand to compare. So we go down and wow. and cross uh, Crossley's there and he's got he had just Misnutted both thrushes and he had them there and he's kind of sh- and he you know he he's a. A strongly opinionated fellow Uh, Yeah, he is And and so he's given us this lecture on these two birds And he says, people say you can't tell them apart in the field Well, look at these birds, see the difference in this, see that You can see that through your binos And after about ten minutes, a fellow turns to me and says And which one's which? (laughs) 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 I mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: but, but you learned from an experience like that, don't argue with Richard Crossley. No, no. I,
0: w- I was <laughs> not going to argue with Richard Crossley. That was not going to happen. But it was just in the monarchs going overhead. And and mm-hmm. what, what was it? Red-bellied woodpeckers, I think. I think they may be not supposed to be migratory, but they flew over by the dozens and dozens and dozens. We're thinking, hmm, they seem to be going somewhere. That's
1: anyway, yeah, Cape me for you.
0: It was a one. And the morning flight. Oh, my God goodness what a crazy mm-hmm. experience that is uh, so that Cape May is pretty special uh, so anyway uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of wrap up a little bit by ha- having you give us some suggestions so I'm getting back to optics a little bit away sure. from birding uh, suggestions you know I, I caught on your uh, on your podcast that you think the the Kawa uh, youth binos are a pretty pretty cool option for kids uh, yeah uh,
1: the COA YF and, you know, a couple things that make that binocular really nice for kids. One is, uh, you know, it's just, it's a good price point. It's a hundred bucks yeah, for those binoculars. pretty nice. The That's other cool. thing that makes them really ideal is that the, you, they have a narrow interpupillary distance. And right. I, what, you know, what I mean by that is that you can, can see the face. eye pieces close together. So for a small face, they are easily accommodate. Uh, so those things right there and the fact that they're in those lower magnifications, six power in particular, really great for kids. Cause it's all those, you know, lower magnification makes for, makes a binocular more user friendly Sure, amongst other things. And whenever you're talking about binoculars with someone, you know, one of the first considerations I always try to put in their mind first and foremost is what is going to work well for you not what's got the best optics in your price range necessarily but first and foremost what's comfortable for you to carry what's comfortable for you to hold what are you going to have success with and that gets more into you know the size binocular uh you know whether it's a 10 by 42 or an 8 by 32 or you know whatever it is, but having something that's just user-friendly and highly functional. And what user-friendly means is different for every user, of course, depending on where you live, what your preferences are. Uh, So that that kind of comes first and foremost, and then once we figure out, all right, here's the type of binocular you're looking for, then you can look at price ranges and start getting into some of the performance characteristics. But yeah. uh, first, you have to find like what is from a well, size yeah, perspective what, what works a,
0: for you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so I have a lot of friends who ask me, you know, they're not birders and <laughs> and they're not poor, but they're not going to spend twenty five hundred dollars on a, on a pair of top end binoculars. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But they might spend four or five hundred dollars on a pair of binoculars, or three or four hundred dollars. So what what uh, uh, you know, for that sort of person, who maybe watches their feeder and or listen to the water and watch watch the boats go by, and and maybe does a little bit of birding. What what would you what what could I aim them other than tell them to call you at Redwood? <laughs> uh, what could I uh, what could I tell them about that 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 yeah, kind of Yeah, so
1: you know when when you look at the landscape of binoculars out there that birders are using and, and you think of the prices varying from say a hundred dollars like those coa yf binoculars all the way up to the you know the real top the shelf binoculars these days are so running twenty five, twenty six hundred dollars. You you know, in between that four to five hundred dollar price range is really kind of a sweet spot. If people get binoculars in that price range, you're often looking at optics that as you develop as a bird watcher, as your skills and interests develop, you aren't gonna necessarily outgrow that price point. Whereas if you're going to be under, you know, 250 or so, you're getting into binoculars that might be great as, you know, entry level and being able to learn to appreciate, identify birds over time. These are pieces that you'd kind of want to upgrade. So I always try to tell people try to hit that four to $500 price range to get something. that's going to have some longevity for you. Sure. If, if that's the way you approach this type of purchase, um, Vortex has a model called the Viper HD, which I, absolutely love. Uh, it's, it's well built. It's got a really generous field of view. The optics are great. as has extra low dispersion glass or ED glass. Right. Um, Zeiss has a model called the Zeiss Terra ED. That's another um, really good model. And then there's uh, one that I've been turned on to recently by Opticron called the Natura, which is um, maybe a little bit more expensive than these two binoculars, but once again, just really nice. Hits a great price point. And You know, you're talking about binoculars that would be waterproof, shock resistant, submersible, fully multi-coated optics. Um, All three of those models have extra low dispersion glass in it and just really good pieces. So those are three binoculars I will point to um, people on a regular basis. Another one's an Icon Monarch. Uh, Nikon has a little bit of a kind of a confusing nomenclature they have a you know Monarch 5 and a Monarch 7 it's like pro staff I think it's like a 3 and a pro staff 5 and you know a little bit hard to like. follow but essentially the, the you know the more that second number is the better the binocular but the okay. Nikon Monarch 5 is a is another good piece that maybe not quite as nice as these other ones that I just mentioned but you can get them for under $300 I believe um, and, and still very good for the money
0: cool cool and and on the high end binoculars, I I mean I am I'm, I'm a Swarovski guy. I've been using them for years. Yeah, ago. and and you can't go wrong. with can't go
1: wrong with pair of Swarovski's, can you? No, I,
0: they they you know they're, they're super. I it's so my Swarovski's I bought got for Christmas maybe 15 or 18 years ago or something. It was like the best Christmas present ever uh, from my wife. Yeah, the- uh, and uh, but I I learned something that would just shock me. I uh, I tripped westport on the uh we were on the docks watching some uh looking for a bartell godwit and, and i they how the docks squapping down and a little rope came up and it tripped me and i fell and and got a little chip right in the middle of the eyepiece glass and it's like mm. dang I'm wow mad, that was awful so i battled that for a few months and i finally i called up Swarovski people and I says oh god can you replace that and he said yeah we can replace that it'd be a hundred dollars i'm like Oh, my God, that's cool.
1: Yeah. And they yeah, said... Not only can they replace it, they, they do it incredibly affordably. Yeah,
0: $100. And I said, wow, how much would it cost to get them? Well, you can get all four down for 250 I said it at $250. I got brand new binoculars. It's like, yeah. oh, my goodness. It's just crazy.
1: You know, um, when, when you look at... Um, Binoculars. There's, there's so many things to, to consider when you're thinking about what kind of binoculars you might want to get, um, and certainly you see this in all price points. But you talk about you know Zeiss, Leica, and Soroski, these top manufacturers, sure. and they make things that are so comparable. Oftentimes, people will try to pick out which one has the best optics i'm going to i'm going to buy the ones that's going to give me the best view and it's kind of a losing no game because they're all so best. good how do you tell the difference yeah. so things it kind of boils down to things like ergonomics or features and, and certainly one of the things that people love about swarovski is um their their customer service is just as high end as the product they sell and one thing that gives them pretty unique advantage in that high-end price point is that they have an incredible service center in Cranston, Rhode Island, where they can actually do repairs here in the U.S. So They're, they're in ability my to do things
0: They're in my contacts.
1: Of, yeah. So to, <laughs> to do things affordably and have a quick turnaround time, they have set themselves up to provide service at a next level, which... You know, a lot of these other importers of optics, they don't have the infrastructure here in the U.S. to do. Yeah. So uh, hats off to Swarovski for doing that. I've had a chance to visit their facilities in Cranston and pretty sophisticated. They certainly invested a ton of money in that. But I would say that the return has been pretty good for them in that sense of customer loyalty and, uh, yeah. you know, brand I was, recognition. I was
0: boggled. It so this was like six to eight weeks turnaround. It was like two weeks. Was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I I mailed them. Three days later, I get a phone call, and like a week later, I get my binos back. It was spectacular. <laughs> not bad, huh? Yeah, not bad at all. Yep. Not bad at all. It's pretty cool. And, and I, I saw a review in uh, the recent Birdwatcher's Digest of the new Zeisscope. Now, all my friends either have a Swarovski or a Kawa. Those are kind of the mm-hmm. the, the ones that I see, so I've never looked through this new Zeisscope. It sounds pretty cool.
1: It is. The, you know, they have um, incorporated it's
0: it's nice to have them come
1: to the market with a kind of a modern scope you know it'd been a little while since we had a nice right. a, a new kind of competitive Zeiss scope out there and certainly the harpia uh kind of fits that niche it has the the field flattening lenses on it which you're seeing a lot in high binoculars you say is it gives you that really sharp field of view you know north to south left to right as you look through it so it's kind of a panoramic Crystal clear view that you get when looking through it. It's Great for sea Swarovs-
0: watches and things like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Swarovski uses a similar technology with their spotting scopes as well, um, and the Zeiss also has this really unique focus mechanism. It's got a you know a single helical collar on the on the barrel of the scope, kind of like a you'd focus a camera lens, if right. you will. But it's it's got two different gear settings in there so once you turn i don't know if it's a quarter of a turn i don't know exactly what the ratio is but it's a fine focus and then after a certain portion of the of the revolution if you keep turning it automatically kicks into a faster focus mode allowing you to you know rapidly focus near to far or vice versa that sounds
0: sort of extraordinary i've got a cow that has two different wheels of uh, course in one wheel yeah
1: Yeah. Um, and it's you know, it, it takes a little bit getting used to, but once you have adapted to how it feels, it's quite effective. And, and you know, a, a lot of people who use that just love it for that reason. Yeah. So um, they have only make it an 85 and a 95 millimeter version. So they've only yeah. got big scopes out there. I, and I, for those I of said us my next, my next scope is going to be smaller. Yeah. yeah. Um, so hopefully, Zeiss, nice if you're listening um, in Germany, Mr. Jerry Dobler, uh, get us a 65 millimeter version of that scope when you can. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that, w- that sounds like uh, I'll keep an eye open for that. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. kind of in a f- in in a little bit as I get a little bit older. I'm going to be in the market for a little bit lighter, a little bit smaller scope. That these things mm-hmm. can be a monster, especially if you carry a camera too. When a camera and binos and a scope. You feel like you're exactly. backpacking.
1: Exactly. And you know, with, with scopes, it's it's with, with anything with optics. You know, it's all trade offs. You know, yeah. you want something lightweight.
0: But i well, I've, I've used the sixty five scopes and they are. If they're not as good, they're almost as good
1: just, yeah yeah well it isn't much The difference. high-end ones that's kind of a way of having your cake and eating it too you know yeah. when you look at mid-price scopes you really see a difference in brightness between the 65 and 85s but yeah. uh you know certainly as you spend more you get that that glass that's more efficient at, tra- at transmitting light and it's almost like you're buying yourself some extra aperture without exactly. carrying around the extra weight
0: exactly really cool so Ben, I've really, really had a good time talking with you. Thanks so much for being on my show. Uh, I'll oh that sure, it was my pleasure. I'll make sure I get a, uh, con- uh, links in the podcast notes to your store and all of that sort of thing. Uh, is there? Any, give me one piece of advice for young birders. What, what would you tell them in terms of optics?
1: One piece of advice for young birders in terms of optics, I would say, uh, you know, I guess. We, and you hear this from a lot, get as good of a pair of binoculars as you can afford. You know, with, with binoculars these days, it's one of the few things that we have in our lives that is purely mechanical. No electronics, no software upgrades. It's not like a car where you're going to see so many birds and you got to trade it in for the next one because, oh, you've already seen 4,000 birds with this one. You've worn it out now. It's a, it's a durable good that lasts a while, so it really makes sense to maybe reach a little bit further than your budget can allow, but you're going to end up having something that... Is not only have this longevity for you, but you just get much more use out of it. So that would be my, my advice. Um, sounds like good advice.
0: Sounds like good advice. And
1: and you you hear it all the time. It's, I would say this, you know, it's not necessarily a nugget of wisdom that You've only heard here. Um, it, it's pretty common <laughs> advice, but it, but it's pretty solid advice, I'd say.
0: I think so. Well, I think you've lived up to your LeBron James of optics, but not the <laughs> Michael Jordan. You didn't go for the Michael Jordan. I, I was pleased to see that as a as a man of a different generation. You know, the Michael yeah. Jordan of optics that would have been too Bill, much. But Bill, LeBron Bill James, I think you, I think you can uh, I think you can you can live up to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that was a that was one of my buddy Bill Thompson coined that term. It's it seems to have stuck. So yeah. uh, good. It's know, it's,
0: it's not a bad not a bad term. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> it's kind of sticky. If you've got to wear it.
0: You might as well wear yep. the top. Yeah, good. Well, thanks again so much for coming on the show. This has yeah. been uh, Ed Pullen, your host at the Bird Bander Podcast, with Ben Listus from Red Start Birding, and it's been an enjoyable time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ed. Bye bye. So that wraps up episode number seven of the Bird Bandar podcast featuring Ben Listus. I've had a great time today and hope you have too. Be sure to subscribe to the Bird Bandar podcast on wherever you get your RSS feeds, the iTunes Store, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. You can also find me at the birdbander.com website where I'll put up blog posts and related information that you might enjoy. If you're more of a YouTube person, you can also find these podcasts on the YouTube channels. You can also find me on most of the social media feeds, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'll leave links to those in the podcast notes. So until next time, birders, good birding, good day.